I begin this morning, I feel like I need to start with a couple of disclaimers. You know, often as a pastor, when you preach, you can't say everything in one sermon. And so you often feel like you need to begin with disclaimers to kind of make some clarifications. But this morning, I think they are particularly in order. And the first of those disclaimers that I want to make is that I want all of you to know that I really don't think that all of you are just terrible, awful, no good, very bad sinners. Now, I, I know that that just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, and that it kind of makes you say, well, Pastor, nobody's ever said anything so nice to me before. I'm sure that's, that's the kind of feelings that that, uh, that arouses. But I want to tell you that this morning to start off with, because I know the kind of passages that we've seen over the last two weeks in dealing with the sin that David had with Bathsheba, and then also with David being confronted by the prophet Nathan. And I also know what it is that I am about to say this morning, that we are going to continue to hear about the destructive nature of sin and just how it can tear lives apart. It is such a destructive force. And so I want you to know this morning that I haven't chosen these passages to preach from because I just think all of you are just awful sinners who need to repent every single week. In fact, I think that many of you know by now that most of the time I don't choose the passages that I preach from at all. That I use something that's known as the Revised Common Lectionary, which gives a schedule of scripture readings throughout the year and uh, during the seasons of the year allows us to follow along with the life of Christ through the, the different church seasons. Not only does it have that advantage and the advantage of uniting us with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world as they hear the very same passages every Sunday, those churches that use the lectionary as well, which many around the world do. It has that advantage of uniting us with our brothers and sisters, but it also has the advantage of forcing me to preach from some passages that I might not choose on my own. Passages like the passage from 2 Samuel 18 this morning, which I'm going to speak about in just a few minutes. A passage like that one where I'm making my own schedule, it's very likely that I would simply skip over. And so the lectionary helps us to hear from all of God's Word. It keeps me from preaching just a few of my favorite passages and helps us to hear from all of the themes and all of the different books of the Bible. And so, this morning I want you to know that, you know, this is the, the scripture that was in the lectionary for this week and it continues on with the story of David's sin with Bathsheba and the, the confrontation of David with Nathan. But, you know, even though I'm preaching for the, about the destructive power of sin for the third week in a row... I want you to know that I actually think that you guys are rather compassionate and merciful and Christ-like people. But in spite of that, we still need to hear this story. Because we believe that no matter how Christ-like we might become, no matter how much God is doing through us as individuals and as a church, as long as we live in this world, Sin will still be a major destructive force which threatens to take us captive. 
which threatens to take hold of us and to make us less Christ-like. And so this morning, even though I believe that God is doing incredible things through us as a congregation and as individuals and that the Spirit is working in us to make us more Christ-like, let's be sure that that does not exempt us from hearing this story this morning. Because the same power of sin that is at work in this story of David threatens to be at work within us as well. As we've seen over the last couple weeks, those same motivations that cause David to hide his sin often push us to be less Christ-like as well. And so this morning, even though I don't think that you know we're just a bag of sinful worms, like Martin Luther might say, uh, we still need to hear this passage of Scripture, which talks about the destructive powers. So that's just the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is that I have to tell a rather lengthy story this morning, and so I hope you'll persevere and stick with me through that story. In fact, I would encourage you right now to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you have a Bible, and a few of the pews have them, if you don't have one with you. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to follow the story of David all the way from 2 Samuel 11 to 2 Samuel chapter 18, which is our actual sermon text this morning. I wouldn't blame you that if, as you heard that scripture read from 2 Samuel 18 this morning, you felt a little lost as you hear about this guy Absalom, who is not a character that we hear about as much in Scripture, uh, and the fact that he is killed in this battle, you might be wondering what in the world this passage of Scripture is all about. And it's with good reason that you would feel lost in that passage of Scripture, because as I said, you really have to go all the way back to 2 Samuel 11 and the story of David to begin to understand what it is that has taken place in 2 Samuel chapter 18. So as I said, let's look in 2 Samuel 11, and I encourage you to kind of follow along if you can as we go through all of these chapters tracing the story of David. You might remember that two weeks ago we heard the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. That is the story there in 2 Samuel 11 where you're looking in your Bibles now. And of course this is a story that many of us have heard before. We noted that at the beginning of the story, David's first mistake was that he stayed home in Jerusalem instead of going out to war as he was supposed to as the king. He was shirking his responsibility. He was putting his duties as king upon somebody else, and he was perfectly happy to allow others to risk their lives in his place rather than leaving the capital city of Jerusalem with all of its comforts and security. And it was because of that decision to stay at home while his commanders and his army went out to war that David was walking around on the roof of his royal home. And as he did so, he noticed Bathsheba bathing across the way, and quickly his lust took over control of his actions, and he sent messengers to bring Bathsheba back to the royal house. And... He treated her as an object to be possessed rather than as a person. And just as quickly as he had brought Bathsheba in, he sent her back home. And eventually David received word that Bathsheba had become 
pregnant because of David's actions. And so David quickly began to devise a cover-up plan. He decided that he would have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, come home and be with his wife so that it would appear that this was his child. But that plan didn't quite work out because Uriah refused to go home to be with his wife while his buddies were out on the battlefield. And so David decides instead that he will scheme in such a way that Uriah will be killed in battle. He sends the command back with Uriah himself to the commander Joab and tells Joab, the commander of the army, to put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle to ensure that he would be killed. And Joab doesn't ask any questions. He does exactly what the king commands him to and sends word back to David that his plot has been carried out. Uriah has been murdered by the king of Israel, the one that up to this point in the story we have been given as a model, as someone to look up to, as someone who followed the example of God and reigned as a righteous and just king. But now he has had Uriah murdered in battle. And upon doing that, he takes Bathsheba in as his wife, which is meant to make him seem gracious and compassionate in the eyes of all of his subjects in the kingdom. Because in this culture, a woman cannot provide for herself. She is sustained by the income of her husband. And so for David to take in Bathsheba as his wife appears to be extremely gracious and compassionate to all of those in the kingdom who don't know what it is that David has already done. And so it seems at first that David's cover-up plan has worked, that no one knows what he's done, but we find out right there in the very last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11 that what David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David had been able to cover up his sin from everyone else, but God knew what he had done. And so, beginning in 2 Samuel 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan comes to David and tells him a story about a rich man who had many flocks and herds. He was extremely wealthy. And there was also in the same city a poor man who only had one lamb. And he cared and fed for this lamb as if it was a daughter to him. Well, the rich man had some guests coming to him, and he had to entertain them. He had to feed them and put a meal before them. And instead of taking from all of his flocks and herds, from all of his wealth, he decides to take the lamb from the poor man, his only possession, the only lamb that he had. Well, when David hears the story that Nathan tells, he burns with anger. He is indignant. He is so angry that at this just injustice that has taken place within his kingdom. And he says to Nathan, that man surely deserves to die. And it's at that point that Nathan reveals to David that he is that man. He is the one who has had everything provided for him. God had made him the king of Israel, given him everything that he had ever wanted, more than he had ever asked for. And yet David felt that it was necessary to take the one thing that wasn't his. And so, in hearing the story, 
David had condemned himself. And so he goes on there in 2 Samuel chapter 12 to confess of what he has done, to repent of the sin that he has done with Bathsheba and against Uriah. Well, the good news is that Nathan says that God has forgiven David of this sin. He says that he will not die as David himself pronounced judgment that the man who did this deserved to die. Nathan tells David that he won't die, and not only that, God is so gracious toward David that he doesn't even lose his throne. David continues to reign as king over all of Israel. But that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to David's actions. Nathan goes on to say in this very same passage that because of what David has done, the sword that is violence will never depart from David's house. That David has laid the seeds, the, the foundation of opposition within his own household. Nathan tells David that there will arise those from within his own house who will oppose him. And the sin that David has committed will tear his family to pieces. Well, that part of the story ends, and then we go on to hear in the next chapter what at first seems to be an unrelated story. But as we go on through these chapters, we find out that what we're seeing is the beginning of this destruction. The beginning of David's household being torn apart. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we hear that David has a son named Absalom. The same son that we heard about in the scripture reading this morning in chapter 18. David has a son named Absalom, and Absalom has a sister named Tamar. Now, there is also another son of David in this story. His name is Amnon. Amnon apparently would be a half-brother of Absalom, a son of David by another wife. And Amnon loves his half-sister, Tamar. Or more precisely, he lusts for her, much as David did for Bathsheba. We can already begin to see that the example that David set is taking shape in his children. That Amnon wants to be with his half-sister Tamar so badly that it makes him ill. Well, upon the counsel of one of his friends, he does just as his father David had done. He takes Tamar as if she were an object to be possessed ignoring that she is a person, and then quickly casts her out, just as quickly as he had taken her. Again, much as the example that he had seen in his father David. Well, we get a little note there at the end of this story that Absalom, Tamar's brother, heard of what Amnon had done, the way that he had mistreated Tamar. And Absalom takes note of it. He tells his sister that it's okay, that he'll take care of this. And so then a little bit later in the story, we hear that Absalom is throwing a sheep shearing party. Now, I don't know about you, that's not exactly my idea of a good time, but perhaps back in the biblical period when there weren't movie theaters and a whole lot of other forms of entertainment, a sheep shearing party was perhaps as good as it got. 
And so Absalom is throwing a sheep shearing party. And he invites all the other sons of the king to come and join in this party. And so, of course, Amnon is in attendance. Absalom gives the order to the sheep shears. He says to them, when I tell you, once Amnon is drunk so much that he can't even walk, when I tell you, get up and kill him. He says, don't be afraid because I am the one who has commanded you to do this. Nathan's prophecy is becoming true. The sword, violence, will not depart from David's house. Absalom's orders are carried out just as he said. The sheep shearers got up and killed Amnon once he was drunk, out of vengeance for what Amnon had done to Tamar, Absalom's sister. Well, as you can imagine, Absalom doesn't want to hang around after he's done this. After all, he's killed one of the king's sons. And so, even though he himself is the son of the king, he flees for fear of what David might do to him. He leaves that area and goes into hiding. Now, as much as Absalom doesn't know what David feels towards him, the text tells us that David's heart went out to Absalom. He was sympathetic towards him because he knew what Amnon had done, and he knew that what Absalom had done, he had done out of care for his sister Tamar. And so the text tells us that David longed for Absalom to come home. Well, Joab, the commander of David's army, saw this. He saw that David was heartbroken over his son Absalom. And so Joab convinces David, bring your son home, bring him back to Jerusalem. And David agreed. And so perhaps as we come to this part in the story, we think that maybe this is it. Maybe the violence will be over. Maybe the bloodshed will come to an end. Maybe David will reconcile with his son Maybe this will be like the story of the prodigal son. That the son will come home and that the father will embrace him as the lost son who has come back. But oddly enough, in the story, that's not what happens. David sends for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but then gives him direction to go aside to his own house. And all the time that he's there, I think the text says it's something like 40 years. All the time that Absalom is in Jerusalem with his father David, David never sees him. He never calls for him. He never gets together with him. We don't know why that is, but for some reason, David never goes to see his son, Absalom. And so, at this point in the story, Absalom's bitterness seems to begin to build against his father. And we find in the story that Absalom, all through this time, decides to go and sit at the city gate. Now, in this day, in this culture, the city gate was an important place to be. In some ways, it was a place of authority. And Absalom decided to go and sit at the city gate, and people would come to him and ask his advice about this. Ask for his counsel. They would ask him to make wise judgments. And he would do just that. And he did this day after day, year after year. And so after doing this for such a long time, well, Absalom was here at the city gate and David was off in his royal house not having any interaction with the common person. The 
people's hearts begin to be persuaded, perhaps, as you can imagine, he grew very popular as he was there among the common people every day at the city gate, deciding wisely for them in all the questions that they brought. And so the story tells us that the people became fond of Aspen, that he grew in popularity, that this is a kind of grassroots movement similar to what his father David had done when Saul had been king. In other words, there's the grumblings of an uprising. Well, eventually, Absalom convinces Joab, the commander of the army, to allow him to go see his own father, to finally go see King David. And so Absalom is able to get an audience with his father, and what he does, he comes to him and he tells him that he must leave, that he has to leave the capital city of Jerusalem and go to the city of Hebron. He makes up some story about how he needs to fulfill a vow that he had made long ago. And so the king releases his son, Absalom, to go to Hebron. Well, we find out that actually Absalom's real purpose in going to Hebron was to have himself declared as king. That's right, his father David is still ruling as king, but Absalom is going to go to Hebron and declare himself king. He's going to capitalize on all that political swagger that he's acquired by sitting at the city gate. And so he goes to Hebron and declares himself as king, and there's an uprising, and there are horns that are blown, and people shouting, and they're excited that Absalom is going to try to take over the kingdom. Well, upon hearing of this, David feels threatened. He feels that he needs to leave the city of Jerusalem because he's concerned with the army that is about to rise up against him. And so David flees his capital city of Jerusalem, taking his most well-trained soldiers with him and some of his most trusted advisors. He leaves his capital city. And so upon hearing that David has left, Absalom leaves Hebron and goes and claims power in the capital city of Jerusalem. And so now, the stage is set for the story that we heard in 2 Samuel 18 this morning. The stage is set for battle between these two rival claimants to the throne. They also happen to be father and son, but now they are political enemies. David's hiding out in the forest with his men. And he does what a good king should do. He begins to order his army. He gives them commands. He gives them a strategy to follow to make sure that this coup is put to rest and that his reign as king will be restored. But in our passage this morning, we also get a glimpse of David the father who is concerned for his son, Absalom. Even though he has ordered his army and he's taken every measure to make sure that Absalom is defeated, David the father goes to Joab and the two other commanders that he has acquired by this point. And he tells them, please, for my sake, deal gently with the young man Absalom. Please see to it that he is not harmed in battle, if at all possible. And so they go out to battle with the king's command, 
and David's well-trained seasoned soldiers quickly put down the rebellion. These, this populist uprising that has supported Absalom is no match for the trained soldiers that David has at his command. Not only that, they do not only that, but they also do battle in a thick forest. The text tells us. In fact, it says that the forest was so treacherous that it claimed more people that day than the battle itself. And so it seems that David, David's well-trained soldiers used the terrain to their advantage and quickly routed the army that was in support of Absalom. Well, after we hear that, that David's army has won, we hear this very odd scenario about how Absalom was fleeing from some of David's men, and as he went through this extremely thick forest, he was riding along on his mule and somehow got his head caught in the branches of a low-hanging tree. It seems like an odd thing, but we do hear earlier in the story there's a small note about how Absalom had extremely long and thick hair. And so perhaps his hair was caught up in the branches of this tree. But either way, he's left hanging there. His animal has gone off and left him, and he's left hanging in the branches of this tree. One of David's men see that Absalom is hanging in the tree, and he comes and tells Joab the command, telling him, I found Absalom. Joab gets upset with the soldier. He says, why didn't you kill him? Why didn't you kill him on the spot? He's the one that we're after. He's the one responsible for this battle. And the soldier says, I heard what King David said. He commanded us to deal gently with his son. Well, at this point in the story, to Joab, Absalom is no longer a son. He is only the enemy. And so despite the fact that he has this opportunity to take Absalom alive, he decides that he will go find Absalom. And when he does, the text tells us that he takes three spears and thrusts them through Absalom's heart. And in fact, even after that, Joab's armor bearers are allowed to attack Absalom just for good measure, just to make sure that there's no chance at all that he's alive. That's the story that develops out of David's sin with Bathsheba. That's how the story ends when it began with something as simple as David staying back in Jerusalem when he was supposed to be out fulfilling his role as king. I hope that this morning in some way that this story speaks for itself as to the destructive power of sin. This story shows us how sin destroys, how it tears apart. It is a power, in fact, it's so great that it spans generations. You know, I think a lot of times that we think, when we think about sin, we think that maybe we're the only ones that it impacts. That if we choose to be disobedient to God's call in our life, then that's only worse for us. But what we see in this story is that sin's power to destroy goes far beyond ourselves. 
it affects everyone around us. And in fact, in fact, as David learned in this story, it often impacts the most, those that we love and care about most. I hope that the next time that you find it challenging to do what is good and what is right, the next time that you're tempted to take a shortcut, to, to cut some corners, to take the easy path instead of the difficult path that God calls us. I hope that the next time that that happens, you'll think about this story and how easily it began and how tragically it ends. You know, I, I know that, at least I'm pretty sure none of us wake up in the morning thinking, you know, what's the worst possible thing that I can do today? How can I really go and just mess up somebody else's life? I, I don't think any of us do that. But, you know, stories like this one show us that that's not really how sin works. That if we think sin is just this open rebellion against God, this willful act against our Creator, then we're somewhat naive. Then we haven't really understood just how destructive sin can be, how innocent it can seem at times. You know, I think most of us get up in the morning and all we want is to know that us and our families will be comfortable and secure, that we'll be safe, that we'll be provided for. And those are good things. We all want those things for our families, and I think that God does too. But there comes a point where when we choose what's safe and convenient over and over again and disregard the challenging and radical way of the cross that Jesus models for us, that begins to shape us. When we choose what's easy and convenient or when we do something that, you know, we know it's not really right, but it doesn't seem like it will really impact anybody. It doesn't seem like it will really have any negative effects. That slowly, time after time, begins to shape us to be less and less Christ-like. So, the next time you face that challenge, where you have a choice between choosing what you know is Christ-like and choosing what seems to be such an inconsequential little shortcut that makes life a little easier and more convenient, I'd ask you to think about this story and to think about your children and your family. Because, you know, the thing about it is, when we make those decisions, they shape us. We're not somehow separate from the things that we do. Everything that we do shapes and forms us to be a certain kind of person. It shapes our character. And that character, in turn, determines how we relate to others. 
so, you know, when you make a choice, that choice isn't just impacting you. It's impacting those around you. It's impacting your children, and your families, and your friends, your co-workers, and those you come to church with. And I'm not just talking about the decisions that those people see. I'm not talking about choosing not to watch a certain television program because you don't want your kids to see it. That's a separate issue. That's a real issue, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the decisions even that you make in secret. The decisions that you think will have no consequence. The decisions that no one sees, even those, impact your family and your friends, your children. They impact them because they impact you. They shape you and therefore shape your children as well. We heard in this this story this morning that David successfully covered up his sin at first. We don't know exactly what his children knew of what he had done. We don't even know exactly how old they are when David commits this sin. But one thing is apparent. That regardless of what they knew, regardless of how well David had covered it up, his sin impacted them. It was passed on to them like a kind of spiritual DNA. And the text doesn't tell us that it was ever because they saw what he had done or heard of his sin. We have to believe that it's simply because the decisions that we make shape our character. And our character shapes the character of our children. So this morning, again, I ask you, the next time you're faced with a difficult decision, an easy way out, a way to cut corners, a a shortcut, a way that's more convenient than being Christ-like, think about this story. And think about your family. And think about how even the unseen decisions that we make impact us, shape us, and therefore shape those around us.